0: and welcome to Ta for Ta, Women's Success China. Today, I am very lucky to be joined by Stephanie Zhu, who is the head of marketing at AZA and the founder of the China Africa Tech Initiative. As we were just talking about, she wears many hats and has a very rich experience so far in her career. And I'm really excited to just dig a little bit deeper into it. I think what would be best though for... Um, for listeners, Stephanie, is if you know, we kind of just start with what are some of the themes that you feel underlie your career and what kind of ties it all together?
1: Thanks, Juliana. It's really exciting to be on the podcast. Um, And that's a great question to start. Um, I think when you are planning your career, uh, it's very difficult to say, okay, this is the theme and you move forward. Hindsight is always Mm -hmm. 2020. But Mm -hmm. uh, I think I have two, you know, main themes and the first is around empathy and connection. And and that kind of comes both in my side projects and also my, my professional career. Um I've worked for a number of platforms that could really empower and connect. You know the the first company I started straight out of university was called Bun Shop, which brought emerging independent Chinese designers to the Western world, and it was very much about showing a different side of China. When everyone was talking about manufacturing and the the rise of copycat China, we were talking about originality and innovation, specifically within you know product design um, and and independent design, Uh, and that was you know a way of showing a different story of China, which I think is a strong way, uh, to, to connect, um, across the world. Um, and then, you know, one of the things I'm still very active in now is I'm the executive director of Phoenix Risen, which is a, we do a series of workshops that bring men and women together to combat sexual violation and sexual violence, um, Specifically focusing on you know, the underlying themes of power dynamics, nonverbal communication, boundary setting. So really trying to preempt the symptoms that come with sexual harassment inside workplaces. Um, and and it's great because it was founded by Peggy Liu, who's been on the podcast before, and that very much is as well about you know our core product is the Empathy Workshop. And it's about involving the status quo, involving men in kind of the the Me Too movement um, to bring people together to combat a a common cause, right? I think it was really born out of this realization that so many women's movements and female empowerment and, and gender equality to a large extent is a antagonizes men or makes it a very Mm. us and them kind of conversation. And we thought that that needed to be uprooted that, you know, you can't change the issues within society without involving what we perceive to be the problem makers. Right. Um, and so, you know, and then kind of moving forward, um, even with my position at SAP, uh, you know, I was head of marketing for a a small medium business unit, and it was selling a product that brought the customer closer to the small business owner. And it's the same thing now um, as the head of marketing at AZA, bringing um, Africa closer to the world, We're a platform that helps businesses move money in and out of Africa and around Africa. And that aspect of B2B financial inclusion is also about access. Um, And economic connection is one of the most you know, powerful forms of connection. If you have, you know, a financial, um, opening or path to a country or people or business, you obviously feel a lot more um, close to them. Right. So, so, you know, at the end of the day, this empathy and connection really has circled very strongly across seemingly very disparate, uh, positions and industries, um in my life. And then the the second theme has been around translating complex technologies into ways that are relevant to customers. Um you know we started uh I after Bunch Up I started my own agency, League X, which was focused on uh, post Series A funded Chinese startups. And this was the beginning of the of the Bitcoin boom in China. I mean I think that was a really exciting place for everywhere to be, but in China in particular. Um and understanding that that not everyone is an early adopter, but making such platforms and technologies easier for everyone. Mm. You know, technology is neutral. Technology doesn't really care about who you are. But at the end of the day, unless there's, you know, people using the technology, it, it doesn't matter. It could be the most interesting technology in the world. But if, and there's, you know, so many stories of failed, technologies, simply because they didn't have user adoption. You know, now in my current job, you know, Africa in many ways is left behind on the world stage, because there is a lot of risk and fear with using a new technology. If you're very used to always using a bank, Um, or, you know, calling up your FX broker, then it is scary to say, I'm going to transfer a large amount of money, um, over the internet, but it's about, you know, creating trust within the product and communicating product features and product USPs correctly to really give people that kind of assurance and that trust. Um, and, and as we all know there's you know increasing fragmentation within the world um, and I think it's really exciting that technology can go, going back to this like connection can bring people closer together but only if you're communicating and speaking in a language that everyone understands um, and that's been another big part of uh, my career as well
0: so I want to actually track back to this empathy and connection theme first of all I, I think you the way you're talking about your career, it's it's so coherent. It's so easy to track. All these different elements, as I've said, you've worn many hats, but to really pull this together and have that self-awareness is really impressive. When we talk about bringing Africa closer to the world and building financial inclusion and access, what did you learn in some of your earlier career experiences at SAP, for example, about how empathy can help build products and build solutions that are going to be successful because they're they're centered around humans.
1: I've worked in a lot of different industries and in a lot of different countries, uh, from, you know, China, Thailand, US, Israel, South Africa, now Kenya and ten other African countries, places that I'm obviously not from, uh, and industries that I'm definitely not an expert in. When I was thinking about the move from China to uh, to Kenya, uh, or to Africa in general, I was actually working for a I was doing an innovation project for Ping An, who has a joint venture with a large South African healthcare insurance company called Discovery. And the whole point was this localization product. It was um, an app that had done really, really well in South Africa as well as other Western countries. And we were thinking about how to localize it and make it coherent for Chinese customers. And despite the fact that I wasn't an expert in Healthcare and certainly not insurance. Um, I think it was just a lot of listening and uh, not being afraid Mm. to ask deep questions with customers. I think this happens. I, I think good marketers are able to get into the heads of customers, not necessarily easily, but you know, after enough effort. I think we're oftentimes afraid of offending or scaring off our customers, so we don't necessarily dig deep enough to understand where they're coming from. And I think that's really necessary. Uh, When it comes to working in an industry or a a country that you're not from, especially when I was moving, when I first started working in Kenya, there were so many difficulties around culture, like just my, my contextual understanding for how to sell, you know, a financial services product to people who, you know, are very conservative when it comes to finances And it took me a lot of listening and asking for help from my team in order to really come around Uh, because I'd done Mm -hmm. this in other places, uh, but this was a different playing ground. I think one of the most difficult realizations was, you know, China is a primarily homogenous market. You know, 95% of people are Han Chinese. Um, You can kind of stratify with like Zhou Linghou, Ban Linghou, et cetera. Uh, But more Mm -hmm. or less, there's, you know, group think to some some level, and, and I understand that because I'm Chinese. But you move to Kenya, and Kenya has 34 different tribes, uh, and they very much act along tribal lines. You, know, you go to Nigeria, it's on the other side of the continent, uh, it's a completely different mentality, and you kind of have to start all over again. And it's really having this learner's mind and having the humility to say, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then also the discipline to test and to see things through, to gather enough data. This is one of the problems that I, I think was really big in China, maybe in the you know mid-2000s, was there was too much data, uh, and a lot of the data was fake. And one of the problems we have across Africa is there's not enough data, uh, and sometimes the data, be- because there's not that much, it's very anecdotal. And so you know, being a marketer with enough discipline to not... Uh, not instinctually change things is difficult, but is one of the things that leads to making, you know, not just human-centered decisions, but data-driven decisions.
0: Yeah. And with the work that you're doing at AZA, do you think that the the largest barrier to overcome is the, the cross-border elements, the product elements, or some more of these softer elements of getting people on the platform, using the platform, what do you see as some of the, the largest hurdles with the work that you're doing?
1: I think there's certainly adoption hurdles. And that's one of the reasons why I love my job because it is certainly an obstacle, but it is very interesting to get into the psyche of, you know, what is a forty five year old treasurer sitting in Benin thinking when he needs to move when he needs to pay his supplier in China. Right. Because that's Mm. so outside of my comfort zone Um, and being Mm. able to use the same kind of language. uh, There are certainly barriers around that. But there's a a, there's a bigger barrier in understanding our CEO, um, who's an amazing woman, um, has a very deep. Uh, has a very deep career in finance and so understanding the complexities of the global foreign exchange market and so the biggest problem is there's no parallel markets in between African to African or sorry the the biggest challenge is that there is no market from African currency to African currency so even though Kenya and Uganda are right next door to each other. I can't directly exchange Kenyan shillings for Ugandan shillings. I need to go through U.S. dollar first, which means wow. that I lose on the exchange on both sides, and and that is a you know a structural financial issue, um, and so we're we're kind of bit by bit tripping away at this, but we we have this attitude going back to this connection and empathy is. Um, using hybrid financial infrastructure. We're not trying to take over banks. We're not trying to replace them or mobile money providers or any of these existing technologies. We're trying to create a more interoperable system where we can link all of these technologies together to create greater connectivity, which leads to greater accessibility. Um, But, you know, that's not... It's very easy for me to explain it to you right now, but it's not necessarily easy to explain that to you know, someone who's managing APIs within a large bank. Uh, and and this goes back to the how can we be human-centered in the way that we explain why this matters at a, you know, 20, 30, 50-year vision for Africa.
0: And, you know, outside of these two themes that you've brought up about empathy and connection as well as translating complex technologies in relevant ways, one thing I've noticed um, in the research I've done and honestly in just speaking with you is that you will dive headfirst into the unknown in a way that is incredibly humble, um, but also it seems very fearless. Uh, you know, Bitcoin, as you said, was a nascent technology in China um, and everywhere else in the world, and it was something that people were very interested in. And a lot of the work that you've done, and I think what I'd love to dive into, is about entrepreneurship. You you dove into the unknown there, and there's a lot of different elements that you have to manage and navigate. So I, I think, you know, I'd love to just talk a little bit more about some of these transition points in your career and and how you you made that decision to to learn something new or or tackle a new problem and really dive into the unknown as I've been talking about.
1: Thank you. Um I really, I really appreciate the compliment. I'm I'm very happy that you see me as fearless, but I'm I'm definitely not I do think that I'm very, <laughs> okay. okay, so so I don't think I'm fearless, but I do think I'm adventurous, mm. right? And the difference mm. is to be, to be, you know, I certainly am as scared as anyone else when I move to a new country where I start a new job, uh, but it's about leaning into that fear um, and seeing it as a challenge. I think that's what adventure means. And adventure is one of my core values, and uh, I'm really... I really appreciate that that you recognize that as as manifesting my career as well. Um, I think I'm very privileged. Uh, I have a really supportive family, luckily, um, and and I always know that at the end of the day, I can move home. Right. I think a lot of mm. um, Chinese, like young Chinese people, are afraid of the rejection of their parents. And my parents have always been very accepting. I think probably from a pretty young age. Um, they accepted that I was the wild one in the bunch. Um, my sister, on the other hand, you know, works worked for a hedge fund last summer, and works in consulting now, is a little bit more risk averse, and so I think they said, "Oh, we have one, we have one good egg. That one will will just let her <laughs> run wild." Um, but, but I, I also just think I I, I think to myself, um, why not a lot. Um, and, and it actually, it, it really is a lot, it's a lot, the inflection points in my career from the outside look very drastic, but from the inside, uh, actually make a lot of sense to me. Um, for example, uh, when I moved from China first to South Africa and then to Kenya, um, it had a lot. It had been something that I've been literally building up my whole life, right? Um, because I, I grew up in China, but then moved back to the U.S., and then moved back to China again. I was kind of flipping back and forth, and I was always very cognizant of my Chinese identity. I was, you know, when I went to high school in in Dallas, Texas, you know, everyone else was like a blonde girl with, you know, big hair, and I was this small Asian girl, uh, and I, I always was very aware that was very different and that carrying a Chinese face uh, came with responsibility. Uh, And because I work in branding and marketing, I also think about how I represent the brand of China, right? And even with Bun Shop, I thought about those things, you know, how can Mm. we change the face and the brand of the the narrative of what China is on the global stage? Um, And, you know, talking about the changing world hegemony, talking about the the dynamics of geopolitics changing um, in my, in our lifetimes, right? We've seen China rise again. We've seen it become a greater player on the global stage, um, you know, picking up slack in certain places that America has started to slide down a little bit, um, becoming a more vocal voice. um, And, and I think all of those things affected me because it made me realize that my identity is not my own, right? My identity has a lot to do with the identity of my mother country and how
0: it is being perceived. And, and you had this consciousness of it.
1: Yeah, yeah I, 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 it just, you know, when I was in China, when I moved back to China after after university, uh, a lot of my friends, you know, kept saying, oh, Steph, you, you've become so communist. Uh, and obviously they were they were half joking, uh, half mm-hmm. serious. Um, but I was saying, you know, the speed of things happened. This is, you know, the 2010s in Shanghai, right? And I was running a startup and feeling on top of the world and all of these things um, and really being invigorated by the type of energy that was there. That I guess when I went back to San Francisco or New York I felt some of it, but it was like this, there was a certain level of complacency, right? Silicon Valley was where innovation was. New York was a, you know, financial capital world. And they were very kind of mm. smug in, in their position versus mm. being in Shanghai and now made me feel like there was this thirst uh, for recognition, for creation, for all of these things. Cause they were up and coming. And I was so invigorated by that. Um, and, and it was certainly a lot of the energy that I see, you know, it's it's a joke that there's a Chinese restaurant in every corner in the world, right? Because of the same kind of mentality. Uh, my, my parents and I, we went on a holiday to Zanzibar and there was, you know, a Chinese restaurant that's been there for like 15 years. And obviously my parents insisted that we eat there every night, but. Um, oh dear. <laughs> I, so, so it's, you know, even I travel a lot. And when I traveled, um, you know, people would be like, Oh, in the beginning people would be like, well, where are you from? I'd say, Oh, from the U S and they'd be like, but where are you really from? Right. It's, it's that kind of, and those kinds of interactions that made me very cognizant of, uh, of the way that people viewed China at large and therefore how that mapped onto me. Um, and, and so, you know, at some point I'd started my own company in China. I'd, I'd gone and worked for you know fortune 100 company, SAP. I'd done, you know, a number of consulting gigs with different, you know, interesting startups. And, um, as I mentioned, this healthcare insurance company. And at some point I realized if I wanted to help change the narrative of China, I really couldn't do it from inside China. Um, there's, you know, there was a lot of myopic thinking that I felt was influencing me and I didn't really feel like I had a, a clear, clear view on what was happening unless I was outside of it. Um, and that's when I started learning and obviously through my work between the South African and, and Chinese healthcare insurance companies kind of bouncing back and forth. I'm um, even, you know, watching the interaction between my South African and Chinese colleagues, you know that that was a fascinating testament to understanding the dynamics of China when interacting with the rest of the world.
0: I I want to dig a bit more into. You felt like you needed to to leave to have a clearer clearer view. Were there certain events that happened where you felt like you couldn't have the effectiveness that you wanted to have, or that you felt that you know the news that you were receiving, the the stimuli that you were surrounded by were myopic? What? Just want to dig a bit more into that. It seems like that was a really strong feeling that you had.
1: I think there were there were just moments where I gone back to the I was you know in, in New York for business or San Francisco, and I was having trouble being empathetic to the way that my friends saw things. Um, which to me was an indication that I had been too entrenched in my current mode of thinking. And Shanghai is such an easy mm. place to live. Uh, and I have, you know, all my family is there. It's so comfortable. And i gotten to that point where comfort became habit. And I, I saw that problematic. Uh, and so I, I don't think it was like one specific conversation, but I think it was a number of, of times where, you know, I, I caught myself saying, but why can't you see it from my side? And, and that's what indicated to me, Uh, That I need to go somewhere else, get a different dose of empathy, and then, you know, see it come to understand how other people were seeing it, to be able to speak their language, to change their minds into the way that I saw it. Or maybe not change their minds, but just give them a different narrative. Add to, you know, Chimamanda Ngozi, the, the Nigerian writer, she talks about the danger of the one story. And I think that's oftentimes the problem with mm. China is that there's one story, right? It was the mm-hmm. one story of communism, then the one story of manufacturing of copycats. Then it was like the story of Huawei and corporate technology espionage, uh, and now it's the, the one story of coronavirus. People can only hold one story in their heads at once. And I know that I can't change that, but for me, it's about how can I bolster that with more evidence and with more perspectives.
0: And so you leaving China, was that also you leaving entrepreneurship?
1: Not exactly. Um, I, when I first moved to, Ke- so after South Africa, I moved to Kenya to join um, the startup of, it was a tech empowered HR platform of a friend of mine uh, who I went to university with. And so I'm definitely still in the startup world, I would consider AZA to be a scale up. Uh, when I joined the company, we were thirty people, but I was the only person in marketing, so I really still felt like I was building something, um, and I could see tangible results from what I was doing. Uh, and now we're one hundred fifty people. You know, I have a team of seven, uh, wow. but. There are so many, you know, we're expanding to new countries all the time, and it is starting over, as I mentioned, because the different countries in Africa are so diverse. It is starting over every single time, so it definitely feels like, you know, when I'm when we're entering into a new market, doing market expansion, uh, you know, it starts. It feels like being an entrepreneur, you know, starting a new company over and over again. So it, mm. you know, definitely does not have the comforts of being. in in a big company.
0: So I guess I asked that because I think you said at one point that you left entrepreneurship and I kind of wanted to dig into that a bit more.
1: Um, I think I left being an entrepreneur. Uh, You know, I started my... Okay.
0: So so actually explain that distinction to me because... I definitely didn't catch that. And I think that there. this is a key, I think this is a key differentiation because it seems like for you, the way that you see entrepreneur as a title is very different than this idea of being entrepreneurial.
1: So I started my first company as soon as I graduated out of university. Uh, if I could change anything, I would not have done that. Uh, I think when you're, you know, a new grad, you, you, You're on top of the world. You feel like you can do anything. And I definitely made a lot of very, very common, easy mistakes that I could have probably not made had I just had, you know, one or two years of experience at a company beforehand, right? Um, And it's really difficult being an entrepreneur. You know, I I think in the last two decades – you know, with Mark Zuckerberg and all of these and and Jack Ma and everyone. Um, But Jack Ma is really honest about this, right? And the difficulties it comes with being an entrepreneur and all the stress and everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to say like my life is easy now. um, But for me, you know, being an entrepreneur means having an incredible vision. And I, I'm very intentional but I don't know if I have that incredible vision. When I look at my CEO now, you know she has this die-hard vision that nothing can can quash, right? Um, and and that takes so much mm. conviction and so much energy. Uh, and you know, and then That's she expects cool. other people to execute. And I'm incredibly organized. I'm very data-driven, goals-driven. I'm really good at execution. Uh, And it frustrates me when I'm vision only. And I think that in a way does not make me a good entrepreneur, but that doesn't keep me from living a life of entrepreneurship, which to me is all about like growth mindset and, you know, quote unquote hacking, you know, coming up with creative ways to do things. Uh, I think that's what entrepreneurship is about. Uh, versus I think being an entrepreneur is like a certain type of visionary leader that a lot of people want to be, but should probably take a deeper look at it themselves and, and consider whether or not that's true.
0: And just kind of back to this first entrepreneurial venture or being an entrepreneur, you know, looking back, what what do you wish you could have told yourself?
1: I, I wish the me now, now that I manage a team of seven and I look at the way that I coach them, uh, the way that I ask for feedback, the way that I check in on them. Uh, you know, there's this great quote, Mm -hmm. um, from the Trilling Dollar Coach, the book, which is your company might make you a manager, but your people make you a leader. And I think back then, you know, the, the company we ran was 15 people. And I thought, I really thought I was such a good leader and such a good manager, but I definitely didn't I think I asked a lot of questions. I was just kind of like ticking the box of like, did I get feedback from everyone versus I didn't really understand what consensus based decision-making was. Um, I just kind of always thought I was right and, you know, try to get everyone to just agree to my ideas, um, which is definitely, you know, not, not the way of being a good leader. Um, and I think just like very, 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 like technical things as well. I've learned so much more about integrated marketing um, and understanding how these different parts of social media and digital advertising and above the line and, you know, press, all of these things tie together. And oftentimes Mm. we'll talk about how difficult it is to measure things like press and branding, but there are ways, right? And all of that would have gone so much further to actually understanding our, our customer and optimizing what we were doing in terms of, customer acquisition and lead generation when we were, you know, doing, starting our own e-commerce company. And had I known all of those things, I wouldn't have wasted a lot of money. Right. Um, so I, I think it's both, you know, the aspects of being a manager and a leader, as well as just technical experience that you get from doing, but I'd rather, in, but, in I, incredibly
0: but I, skills.
1: But, but I think the other thing is it's, so mm-hmm. much better to learn on someone else's dime than your own, right? When you're straight out of university, right. and you are, you know, you're no, fu- you're know, we a VC fund we fundraised, but at the end of the day, I still felt very, I still felt like it was my money that I was like responsible for these responsible. People, yeah, for these people who work for me. Versus, you know, you go to a big corporate. I learned so much when I was at SAP about how big companies work. Uh, and SAP is great branding, and they have great above the line advertising, all of those things. And it was great that I got to learn on their dime rather than
0: my own. And that makes sense, and that's incredibly valuable advice. I think a lot of people think about a lot of people think about when they graduate, they want to be doing something on their own, they want to be building something on their own, and that it's going to be an incredible learning experience. And it seems like it was, but I also think what you are saying about. Uh, having a space where you don't have as much responsibility, but just as much, if not more opportunity to grow, isn't the worst option either. And I think that that's a really fair point.
1: Yeah. But it's also like the ego side of things. When you're, when you are fresh out of university, you really think you're the smartest person and then you're going to invent something that nobody else has come up with. And then the Mm. more you meet people and the more you're exposed to, the more you realize that, you know, you're not making anything new, actually, you're just the idiot who tried to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and that's and and it's so funny because now I do a lot of mentorship and I tell y'all entrepreneurs that and they don't believe me, right? And they they everyone insists that what they're doing is unique and different, but that is that's you know, truly unique is one in a million, right? The, the most successful companies are not necessarily the ones who've done something, you know, crazy out of, it's not exactly, it's not necessarily the moonshots. It's the people who have been able to execute really, really well. And I think more entrepreneurs need to think about that piece, especially in places like China where competition is so fierce mm-hmm. and especially in places like Africa where infrastructure does not exist. So you have you just have that, the mm. discipline to create your own infrastructure, to gather your own data, uh, and then act upon those things. You know that kind of that 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 being detail oriented uh, when it comes to execution is so so important.
0: What do you think could be more difficult the the presence of extreme competition in China or the absence of foundational infrastructure in Africa?
1: So it's really interesting because. This is what a lot of China has try- been trying to do in Africa, right? Is the Chinese government with through belt and road came in and built a lot of physical infrastructure, right? Literally, you know, roads and bridges and all of those things. And then a yes, lot <laughs> a large number of Chinese um, digital infrastructure came in, right? Huawei, uh, actually so Safaricom is the largest telco in Kenya has 97% of market share. Uh, and Huawei is the, you know, the tech infrastructure behind them. Uh, and so, you know, there's this increasing amount of, of digital infrastructure now. Uh, and then I think now we are starting to see a lot more Chinese VCs, um, Chinese investors coming in uh, and trying to build on top of this, this foundation. And so it's China has great foundation. China has great platforms. And it's interesting to see how they have brought that onto the continent um which one i think is more difficult is is probably africa to be honest because so much of that is outside of your control like if in china because people are more competitive you just have you have to work harder right and you have to find more resources and uh and it really motivates you versus in in the african countries that we work in at times when you want to you know start a new business model but there's no regulation around around it. Like we were one of, we were the first um, PSSP to be licensed in Uganda and the Ugandan central bank had to make a type of regulation for us. And that took, you know, three years. Um, You know, there are so many things that feel out of your control, but once you get it, you have that competitive advantage, right? You can say, I have this licensing or I have this specific technology or this data center um, that nobody else has, uh, and then you kind of have to go back to what we talked earlier about with user adoption and, and convincing people. But at least you have the foundations. Uh, so I feel the competition you you maybe have more agency over versus a lot of the foundational things you, you just have to put your head down and commit to it. Uh, and eventually it does pay
0: off. Very interesting. And I was concerned that I might have been too meta of a question, but it, I think, you know, you have this, this grasp on both the markets to really think about it in that sort of way. So what are you looking forward to right now in your career? what What's occupying a lot of your mind space? What What are you thinking about a lot right now? I think
1: I, I think a lot about how to hit my numbers, that's because I am so results driven. That's what takes up a lot of my mind space. Uh, mm. But from a more meta standpoint, I suppose, you know, as, as of recent, I, I've recently become vegetarian. Um, I've, fo- I've started thinking a lot more about planetary health. Uh, I was at Davos mm. earlier this year, and it was the first year that you see big business being very concerned about climate change. Um, I was in an incredible, uh, an, an incredible panel, um, you know, in accordance to Chatham House rules, I won't say who exactly was there, but I will say the CEO of a very large insurance company you know, came forward and they said the, the, the developed world feels like they are insulated against climate change because they have insurance, They think at the end of the day, if my if the house is burned down, um, if the crops don't grow, uh, if there's a break in the supply chain, if there's any of these issues, you know, the the insurers will bail me out. But what they don't realize is that insurance is based on an actuarial model. Right. It's based on risk. And the problem with climate change is climate risk at some point becomes 100 percent. And, you know. Somewhere in between where we are and that 100% of climate risk, you know, the the models for insurers are starting to break down because there are so many interactions between different aspects of climate that we're not prepared for. And and at some point, the insurers are going to pull out and say, it does not make business sense for us to insure you anymore. Um, And for me, or I think for a lot of people in that room, it was a big wake-up call because for me, I feel climate change everywhere around me, right? I live in Nairobi. And when I see my, like my colleagues, they have family that live up country, you know, 80% of the country is still agricultural. So we talk about things like the long rains came late. The short rains came early, wash the crops out. Um, You know, I was just in Kakuma, which is the Mm. second largest um, refugee camp in Africa. Uh, It's 200,000 people. And then Dadaab next to is 800,000 people. And it's a ton of Sudanese refugees. And, you know, South Sudan and Sudan are in a civil war because of, you know, food scarcity uh, and resource scarcity driven by droughts and climate change. Uh, In East Africa, we're having a locust invasion which is basically prompted by inconsistencies in, in rain and temperature. And, you know, I feel and see all of these things viscerally around me. And, you know, one of the things that I'm most hopeful for, uh, and I've been having a lot of conversations uh, with Chinese investors, with different kinds of players in the market um, here in, in Africa, is around how can Chinese how can China better support um environmental innovations in Africa. Uh, And, you know, um, China also just passed their first um, laws around like looking at impact and requiring state-owned enterprises to measure impact on the environment uh, and and socially. And I, I just, I think we're at a really interesting cusp that could lead to a lot of collaboration across seemingly disparate organizations, industries, governments, etc. Because, you know, the alternative is doing so um, in, in an uninhabitable earth, which is an incredible book, I recommend everyone read it, you know, doing something slowly is equal to doing nothing at all. And I think there's this growing sense of agency. And I'm so excited that I, I come from one of the largest, most powerful com- countries in the world who have tons of resources and have manufacturing capability and the ability to, to just simply change things, right? Sensen changed all of their public transportation from traditional to electric within three years. You could not do that anywhere else in the world. And now they have the potential no. to bring those kinds of innovations to the rest of the world, and And I know there's a lot of sensitivity around you know 5g and all these things, but I'm really hoping that um, environmental and, and sustainable innovation is some something that everybody has the same attitude about and is willing to collaborate on
0: I guess back to the the work with Phoenix Rose, and really bringing things at uh, full circle is you know how has the the content and the empathy workshops that you all have worked on, have, have those evolved over time? Have Has there been any changes in the way you think about the curriculum, whether that's based on how society thinks about sexual violence or about what you find will be most effective?
1: So when we originally designed the content, we worked with a team of global facilitators to really come up with a curriculum that could sit above cultural and linguistic barriers. Uh, And so rather than telling people, you know, this is okay and this is not, it is design thinking is a design thinking based workshop that helps people understand where their boundaries are and the boundaries of others in their society are. So it's, it's, you know, creating white space to have these conversations because in most societies or most spaces, whether it is um, within a community or within a workplace, you don't actually get opportunities to talk about things like that. So I think intrinsically that aspect has not changed. Um, But I think we've been thinking recently a lot more about how we can broaden uh, empathy as a tool, not just to think about, you know, sexual violence, but also to think about other topics like climate change or just, you know, increasing fragmentation between People of different political ideologies um, or different nationalities, ethnicities. Um, and so now, what we're really working on is scaling and widening the the breadth of the of what the workshop might apply to. Um, you know, we've seen it be we've run this over a hundred times with you know two thousand people, uh, and we've seen it work over and over again. And so now the question is, how do we make it work on a bigger scale?
0: Really great. So I think I only have one more question for you, and I ask this, even though you've talked about a lot of different advice over the course of your career, it's something that I normally ask to, to every interviewee that comes on the show, is, you know, what's one piece of advice that you've received that really has stuck with you so much so that you find yourself giving it to other people?
1: Someone who's impacted uh, my life a lot, his name is Paul Ark. Um, he is also a huge proponent of women. Um, you know, he now runs a, a number of VCs in Thailand. He's just an incredible human, uh, but is very successful. And I've had, you know, different kind of reincarnations um, in different careers. And I remember sitting in a co- I think it was like a Dean and DeLuca or something like that in, in Bangkok and asking him how he got there. And he said, you know, I have a very simple philosophy. I do what makes me happy. I do it until it doesn't make me happy. And then I go do something else that makes me happy. And and I love that. I, I love the idea of tying, you know, happiness and well being into what it is that you do every day, and really trusting that the that the universe is conspiring to give you what you need. Um, and obviously, you know, this comes from a lot of privilege. There's a lot of people who don't have the luxury of simply doing what makes them happy. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I think it's important to recognize that, but at the same time, you know, we have all of these rackets, all of these complexes in our head that we have to hold on doing this or that, or we're not going to be able to find a new job. We're not going to, you know, what happens if I fail at this? Um, and, and the, my bigger question is, are you really willing, you know, Jack Ma also always asks, um, what do you want? Um, but also what are you willing to give up for it? And ultimately my answer is I'm not willing to give up my happiness for the, for, you know, certain aspects of what I want. And so that's always been, you know, a really grounding, um, and central part of, of my career.
0: So, you know, I think that's a really great piece of advice to end on. And, you know the way that you've wrapped up your career with empathy and connection and also translating complex technologies and diving into the unknown, I think that you know if you continue to find things that align with those those themes that I'm really excited to see where you continue to go. So, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you so much, Juliana. It was a pleasure. <laughs>
0: And that's it for today. Make sure to write a review on Apple Podcasts and leave your email in the comment. We're going to be giving away a free one-year membership to the China Institute that you don't want to miss out on. We're also getting more active on Twitter, as you've hopefully seen, providing content that really elevates and supports what you're listening to here. Our Twitter handle is at ta ta and of course, we still regularly check our email at ta.4.ta.china at gmail.com. ta forta, ta Women, Success, China, is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks again to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing, Jason McRonald for editing, and Jamie Lue for marketing. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is ta for ta